Welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with GBAO. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls, driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. Hello. It's almost here. What? What? The Iowa caucuses. They're the almost Super Bowl, here. my favorite time of the year. <laughs> it's the Super Bowl for pollsters. That's true. I mean, outside of your conventional election nights, the season we are entering, primary season, is just like the hits won't stop. It's every week from here until as far as I can see on the horizon. Yeah, it's happening now. New new stuff is happening. Yes. It's very exciting. We have, we have my birthday and the Super Bowl, yes. which are those sort of twin pillars of cold weather for me. <laughs> for once, not the same weekend, but often are, but not this time. And now we're headed to those other twin pillars of cold, of cold times in <laughs> Iowa and New Hampshire. My husband sent me a tweet from – there was somebody who's like a manager at an REI in Iowa who tweeted oh, like yeah. something like, I have been nonstop helping <laughs> reporters who have been pouring into my store trying to get assistance with cold weather gear. Like, it's perfect. I, you know, I, I saw I, so, I saw like someone who was like a reporter or a commentator, like, I'm going to Iowa. Reporters, what boots do I need? And people are like, why are you only asking reporters? I'm like – Man, person can't just ask for some boot recommendations on Twitter without getting like, <laughs> dragged for no reason. Uh, anyway, yeah. well, Des Moines is uh, it's going to be hopping. I'm headed that way. Yes, I'm also coming. I will be there too, and I'm going from Iowa to Vegas. I ooh by way of Washington. I think that's what's happening. Nice. Yeah. Oh, that'll be very fun. I'm pretty envious. I, I don't get to go into Vegas afterwards. I will be going from. Iowa back to D.C. and then ultimately up to New York to do some stuff for Fox for the Democratic debate on that coming Friday. But um, oh, and the State of the Union, by the oh, way, right. is somewhere in this mix. I'm pretty sure it's Tuesday. Tuesday. Yep. So the it, wild times out there. Guys. Wait, and we're going to have a really big mega guest, too. But we're not releasing yes. yet, but we're going to have a big Margie mega guest. Margie and I have some polling data we are dropping next yeah. week that will be very exciting for everybody. And then we have a huge guest who is going to be coming on the show uh, soon. So big things afoot as the pollsters approach five years I know. of podcasting. <gasps> so wild. I know. Well, let's dig into this week's top lines. The Bernie bounce. Is it real and is it happening? We will discuss what's going on in the Democratic primary and some of the new polls suggesting a little bit of a surge for Senator Sanders. We'll take a look at Iowa as well as the states just passed it. How is Iowa specifically looking and will it affect what's going on in the subsequent states? We'll talk a little bit about who is electable, who stacks up best against President Trump and what's the best way to evaluate that, as well as talking about some media polarization Are people choosing to eat less meat? And are people going to watch the big game? Are we allowed to call it the Super Bowl? I don't know. It's not an ad. We're not doing an ad. It's the name of the game. I get why, like, a pizza place can't advertise. You know, they have to call it the big game special. But, well, if we get sued, it's fine. I think we went through this, like, we go through this every year. I worry about, like, are we allowed to actually call it the Super Bowl? Right. I mean, when... Doesn't getting sued for calling talking about the Super Bowl on your nerd podcast like a good day for nerd podcast publicity? It's true. 
I'll, I'll allow it. I'll allow it. We'll uh, see. So let's let's talk Dem primary. So at the moment, yeah. the trend lines are showing Biden holding steady nationwide. Um, the 538 tracker has him about 27 percent of the uh, Democratic primary electorate. That Sanders number has been creeping up slowly, now has him around 21 points. Warren has her slide has subsided, but she remains in that third place spot around 15 points. With Bloomberg and Buttigieg now each coming in pretty close to one another. Bloomberg actually in that fourth slot at about 8% and Buttigieg at 7 Uh This is creating a little bit of panic. So, <laughs> I mean, I think it's useful to look at the full trend line. So, I mean, if you, for example, when Biden, I think that big Biden spike in you know, was that around May or so? I think that's when he announced. When he announced, right? And you could see uh, Sanders drop, right, when that Biden announcement came. But then after that, you see, and then Biden came down after he had a big announcement bump that then subsided to kind of his incredibly stable place he's been since around, you know, around August or so. While the Sanders and Warren numbers, while they are not necessarily trading voters per se, but it almost looks that way if you look at that at their lines because you see Warren going up in the summer and early fall and Sanders really staying, you know, kind of where he was. And then as Warren started to drop, Sanders started to go up. So they look like, you know, kind of two lines crisscrossing each other a few times over the course of the year while Biden being in a kind of his own sort of lane using lane really more literally here if you're looking at it as like sort of ski tracks, right, than, than the others. And Bloomberg versus Buttigieg note that they have very different campaign strategies. Buttigieg is on the air, has been on the air heavily in these early voting states. This is we're looking at the national trend line right now, while Bloomberg has been doing a national ad buy that is focused on everything that comes after the early voting states. Yeah. In addition to having different strategies, um, they they don't all have exactly the same types of voters to whom they appeal. There are some really interesting divides I noticed in the latest Quinnipiac poll. So Quinnipiac always puts out their crosstabs. And I was really blown away this week by the age divide when you look at Democrats nationwide about uh, who would you vote for. Among voters 65 and up, Joe Biden wins 36 percent. No one else is even close. Second place is Bloomberg at 14. Third is Klobuchar at 10. Then you have Warren at nine and Sanders at seven. I mean, Sanders at seven percent. That is like a fifth of what Joe Biden has among senior Democrats. Even if you look then one you know layer down at 50 to 64 year old Democrats, Biden still has three times as much support as Sanders. So for older Democrats, which comprises a large portion of the party and many of their relatively reliable voters, they are very much on the Biden train and not at all on the Bernie train. Right. But then you look at this crosstab of 18 to 34, Biden at 3% and Sanders at 53%. That is amazing. Yeah. It, it is so much. I have so many feelings about it. Well, it so it goes to this point. I mean, this was true last time around, Joe too. Joe Biden, read the selfie vote. Available <laughs> at bookstores near you. <laughs> like that one does not need to look exactly like a audience in order for that audience to want to vote for you, right? Because younger voters are not necessarily with the younger, you know, they're not all 
Tulsi Gabbard voters, for example, who I'm pretty sure is, you know, the youngest in this field. So they are Sanders not does making have that Cardi decision B. based and on. And he has Joe Rogan, a podcaster who is has a very big following and prominently endorsed Sanders this week. And that made. But this poll headlines. was probably taken before this. But this poll was probably taken before that. But just this it, it's all contributing to this like. Sanders is catching an enthusiasm wave narrative and narratives are always scary and fraught and possibly dumb. So I have a digression. Now, a subgroup that was uh, very interested in in a narrative yesterday, and that is dog lovers and (laughs) (laughs) Bloomberg's schnoz shaking of a dog's nose and and i it it seemed like a thing a dog that dogs would like like don't dogs like that if the dog if you know the dog and the dog knows you they might like you shaking their nose but people still enjoy time and they released like a dog video this morning i did to shake wally's nose like this today and he was like what's happening (laughs) trying to evade it so i would disagree that that is a way dogs like to there was disagreement on twitter but no the bloomberg team put out like a dog video like dogs rough mic or something i don't know may i may have the name wrong but they had some sort of dog pun in like they did like a dog the bloomberg digital team has <laughs> some absolutely bonkers things that they post from time to time like didn't they post last week it was like a picture of the moon and it was like you know how like you can can you see a face in the moon and they had like put bloomberg's face on the moon or something i, I mean like that it's one. just it's like someone sitting around doing uh, consuming substances that make them very creative <laughs> and are just pumping out whatever they feel like it. <laughs> somebody, somebody said that said, apparently this is not even the first time Mike Bloomberg has greeted a dog by and it was like a different photo. And that one, the dog does not look happy. And the first one, the one yesterday, the dog seemed totally fine with it. Virgie, are you okay? I don't know why. This Do is, we have to stop the show? Like, I don't know. It just has everything. If you don't want political news, maybe you want dog content. Oh, we're losing our minds. Um, so let's talk a little bit. So Morning Consult put out some polling. And let me. I'm going to open this link here on my good old iPad, because I believe the top line number on this surprised me. Nope, this must not be the poll. There was some poll that I thought I saw that Morning Consult had put out that had Tom Steyer in like third place and not in South Carolina. And I was like, what's happening? This is interesting. Oh, early primary state voters. So Morning Consult has their national poll. And when you limit their – so overall, their poll shows for Democratic primary voters overall, Joe Biden, 29 percent, Bernie Sanders, 23, Elizabeth Warren, 14, Bloomberg, 12, Buttigieg, 7. OK. Then you switch to Super Tuesday voters. Pretty similar looking ranking. Biden, 28, Bernie, 24, Warren, 14, Bloomberg, 13, Buttigieg, 6. Early primary state voters, which I don't know how they're defining that. All of a sudden, Tom Steyer goes from like nowhere to being 17th and Bloomberg vanishes. So I am extremely confused about what's going on Hmm. here. Is this yet again, this is like last week when I was like, morning consult. Elizabeth Warren is now the eighth most unpopular senator. (laughs) But at least there, there was like an explanation here. I am extremely confused about what is happening, that all of a sudden, whatever states they're looking at, suddenly Tom Steyer just jumps up into the lead. Yeah. 
It's, it's strange to me. I think, look, so we're going to, I guess this is a probably as good of a time as any to say, we have no predictions of what's going to happen in Iowa, which is next week. We're recording this on Thursday? today. No, Wednesday. Today's Wednesday. So we, there are no predictions. So you have, there will still be a couple more polls coming out. There's polls that, that um, there were polls that came out today. Monmouth, Quinnipiac. I think there's a new, another DMR poll that's, that's going to come out uh, before election day. And I think we should... Remember that a lot of these polls, there was a New York Times Siena poll, et cetera, in Iowa. And so I, I think we should acknowledge that these polls are still up in the air. They show a lot of things can happen, that the, you know, determining who's going to vote in a caucus is not as straightforward as saying, how likely are you to vote in a caucus? Because there are pretty low turnout elections and they require a little bit of a time uh, investment, perhaps more than um, than other kinds of voting. But there has been some polling and discussion of how people are making their decisions, which I think is illustrative. I know that it's not people are not always good reporters of these things. And when you ask questions like some of these about how likely, you know, would this kind of candidate or that kind of candidate do well, these kind of political consulting questions that we sometimes ask. We don't know if people are thinking about Elizabeth Warren when we say people would be more likely to vote for a, a female candidate, or are they thinking about female candidates in general? Are they thinking about Klobuchar? Are they thinking about Hillary Clinton? Like, what are they? What are they thinking about? But I think it can still be helpful as we're getting closer and people are starting to really uh, dig in to see what these results show. And they show, I think, consistently that people feel that Joe Biden has some advantage in electability. At least that's their perception. But it's not just. It's not that people think that Biden can win and not anybody else because there are people who think that lots of different candidates have a good chance of winning. So um, this is from Huffington Post YouGov poll. And with different levels of enthusiasm about which about different candidates, right? So of Democratic primary voters, folks who say that they would be enthusiastic about Warren, you know, more say they'll be enthusiastic about Warren than about anybody else. Not many people would be upset about any of these candidates really becoming the nominee until you get toward the bottom of the list. Like Tulsi Gabbard has the highest, like, I would be angry if she became the nominee. And then this I thought was pretty interesting. And then we could talk about the head and the heart thing was about a quarter of folks in this poll said they're planning to vote for a candidate who isn't my favorite, but who has a better shot at winning. So two-thirds say they're going to vote for their favorite candidate, but a quarter say I'm going to vote for somebody who's not my favorite candidate because of what I think someone else's favorite candidate might be. Yeah. There is a ton of data that says that Democratic voters believe Donald Trump is such a grave threat that removing him from office is priority number one right. and everything else is secondary. And so if that is the frame through which you are looking at the election, then suddenly this whole gaming out who does somebody else like stuff becomes much more front and center. Right. And I think that's part of why you are – I mean Republicans sort of felt the same way four years ago that for many Republicans there was this deep-seated antipathy toward Hillary Clinton and this belief that like we have just got to pick whoever can beat Hillary Clinton. Now, the calculation of many Republican voters was different than the calculation of many Republican pundits, your, your co-host included. And so you know, this was – it, this was very much present as a part of the conversation on the Republican side last time. And now you're hearing it with regards to Bernie Sanders. Is he electable? Is he not? Jonathan Chait has a really good piece, I thought, sort of making the case for why Bernie has what he calls like a lot of downside risk. But like, sure, 
Bernie Sanders could win. Like this is a, these are strange times. Donald Trump has very bad numbers overall, uh, but that he believes the downside risk of somebody like Sanders is very high. And therefore, I think he uses the word insanity in the headline on his piece um, to describe nominating Sanders. My column in The Examiner this week takes a, a, a different view, which is that like I think Jonathan Chait is right that there is a lot of downside risk to a Sanders candidacy. But I am continually struck by the fact that in these ballot test matchups where it is, would you vote for Trump or Bernie? Would you vote for Trump or Biden? The differences between the two are so small. Right Now, a two-point difference can either be, well, that's real small. That's within margin of error. What are you talking about? Or you could say, because that two-point difference is so consistent across so many polls, if this is going to be an election decided on a razor's edge, we don't have two points to just be throwing around like whatever, following our heart, we need to be maximizing every vote we can get. Right. Or you could just say, look, you know, this is just where the race begins because you have Democrats who are, you know, have different levels of definition with a general electorate. Mm -hmm. And what we don't know, this is, you know, at least what we don't know for the public polling, I should say. The public polling (laughs) does not pressure test all the different candidates to have a sense of like, well, what happens if you have an extended discussion about X or Y in each candidate's profile? We don't really have that in the public polling. So you can't make that measure of electability. It's just people asking. It's asking people their own self-report. You don't know what guidelines they're using. You're using what they think other people's biases might be. We're not actually asking in the public polling, well, what about this person's record on X or that person's record on Y? Or, you know, we're asking about like, do you think that people would not like this person? Or we're asking about some sort of broader categories that may not actually be vote drivers. Like, well, how do you feel about this issue? Well, that may not actually be a vote driver for people, even if they have an opinion on it. So so it's hard to get a sense of electability, but it's clear that it is on people's minds. So I think that's interesting. And then Quinnipiac had this question. Now, would you say, this is for if you could pick a candidate in the Democratic primary, would you say you were choosing a candidate with your head or with your heart? What do you think most people said? So I think that saying with your head is the answer people will assume is the right answer and therefore is the one most people will give. Right. So you would be right. Okay. Well, you'd be right, at least in the answer. I can't speak I to the motivation. I am making this decision with my head. Yes. 78% said head. 13% said heart. 9%, I don't know <laughs> which I used. Some other part of my body. Oh, God. And then, um, I don't know. I don't know. How could you not know? Or you say, like, this question is crazy, right? Um <laughs> And then they broke it out, and they don't usually do this very often, by candidate that you support. So which candidate's voters do you think were most likely to say, I'm voting with my head? See, I would assume Elizabeth Warren because of the she's got a plan for that vibe. She is at the bottom of the head voters. 76% say of her voters say that they're voting with their head. So anyway, who else do you think would be? If it's not Warren, who would be top of the head, the head voters? Buttigieg? No. Actually, I bet you Buttigieg is more of you like know, a heart. Like, I just like him. This poll doesn't have the breakout Buttigieg voters. Oh. They must not have had enough Buttigieg voters. The, uh, oh, because it's national. national. So it's Biden, Sanders, Warren, Bloomberg, and Klobuchar. I don't, I don't know then. Okay. Amy Klobuchar voters are most likely to say that they are voting with their head. 87%. 
These differences are not that big. Everybody says head, right? But there's like, it's interesting that Klobuchar voters are more likely. Biden is the most likely for people to say hard. Yes. Which I think kind of contradicts the idea that people are like holding their nose and are like, oh, I don't really like him, but he's the most electable. Right. Right. People got their hearts open for Uncle Joe. Well, he's good in that uh, heart-centric Heart forward, you know, connection I feel with you folks. choosing words very carefully. <laughs> you succeeded. Congratulations. Um, if I can get through this, <laughs> this show within, without any gaps, I'm going to feel pretty good about myself. All right. <laughs> so. Well, let's, let's talk about uh, Iowa. Yeah. Where... So Iowa, you know, I mean, what's interesting here is the, um, the 538 trend line shows Klobuchar inching up. I think the other stuff that's happening with the other four candidates is a similar kind of fluidity that we've been seeing now for a week or two. But that Klobuchar trend now seems to be kind of a a real thing, a real boomlet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Buttigieg over the last month or so has slid a little. And that seems to have accrued very slightly to Joe Biden's benefit. But at the same time, this like Sanders bounce. I mean, there have been you can choose your own adventure based on which of these big polls, whether it's CNN, you know, Ann Seltzer, Des Moines Register, whether it's Monmouth, whether, you know, there are tons of these polls that have come out. In my view, they all tell a story of Sanders and Biden are the most likely to be the winners. But a lot of this has to do with does Klobuchar hit the viability threshold in some places or are there many caucus uh, sites where she gets to 11% and all of her people have to get redistributed. And then does that help Biden? Right. Or, you know, what's going on there? So there's a that's the other thing to keep in mind is there are, I believe, three different tallies we will get. One is the what you would think of as the popular vote, which is just kind of what everybody's first round preference is. Then you will get what is the delegate allocation. And then I think there's some other way this stuff gets counted. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be complicated, right? It is not so straightforward. And do people have strategic voting and who they have, you know, what they do next and so on. And uh, the other thing is, you know, and we've mentioned this before, but it's just very important to, to remind folks is how do you identify people who are going to vote in these caucuses? Um, because buying, a, you know, having the list of past caucus goers is not something that the public media outlet pollsters are using. And uh, New York Times Siena poll, they looked at different types of universes and found a real difference on whether Biden was had a lead over Sanders this or whether, super interesting or whether Sanders had a lead over Biden. So if you looked at people who voted in the 2018 primary, those people gave Biden a plus eight advantage over Sanders. And if you looked at people who said they voted in the 2016 caucus or in past caucuses generally, those people are more likely to vote for Sanders over Biden. And we've seen, you know, other public polling that had, you know, almost half roughly of the poll saying that they were first time caucus goers. And, you know, maybe that's high. I think we should assume that that the caucus turnout will be on the higher side and not on the lower side. And, you know, looking at the weather, it's going to be cold, but it's not going to be like four feet of snow or anything like that. So I think there's, you know, reason to believe that it'll be on the higher side. So maybe there will be first time, you know, a lot of first time caucus goers. But at the same time, if you are just going based on self-report of past caucus goers, how many people in that group are actually, you know, people who said, oh, I have voted in a caucus before. How many of them are actually 
Yeah. They wanted to vote in a caucus before. They didn't get around to it. You know, we don't know. So this is what I found so so interesting about this is that it is often the case that if you're like building a model to decide if someone is a likely voter or not, the things you look at are past participation. And the fact that there's such a huge difference between people with a validated record of voting in low turnout contests, not caucuses, but low low turnout primaries. So you know, Senate or governor primaries or whatever, those folks lean so much more Biden. But that the moment you switch to it just being about caucuses, it like swings wildly the other direction. Typically, we think of past participation in oddball, non-presidential general election things as like, oh, that's all contributing to your likely voter model. But this almost suggests there's a very different way of calculating Mm -hmm. who is a caucus goer versus who is a likely voter in all other contexts. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's like a totally different Mm -hmm. set of people. Right, right. Really interesting. Right. And so just taking out this presidential primary aside and just in general is, you know, folks who do internal campaign polling and you look at the voter file or a vote history or vote turnout models, turnout scores that will tell you how likely that person is to turn out based on a variety of different factors. And that's not always available for these public polls, but it is something that internal pollsters look at all the time because sometimes the elections are not going to be comparable. So, you know, if you looked at 2017, um, you know, 2017, all the public polling that showed things were, you know, maybe in Ralph Northam's advantage, but it didn't look dramatic. Well, were they looking at, you know, vote history or self-reported vote history from the previous gubernatorial race, which had lower turnout? And so would that end up making it look less favorable toward Democrats and so on. Anyway, so it's this kind of, you know, different elections have different kind of compositions based on how competitive they are and how energized one one side feels. And it's important to keep all that stuff in mind. Obviously, New Hampshire, where independents can vote in either, you know, a lot of voters go where the action is. And so the fact that there's there's no action on the Republican side. There's no action on the Republican side (laughs) means that the electorate is going to have perhaps a lot more independence this time around than last time around. So, I mean, all these things really matter and Internal polls can and often have the tools to spend time on that maybe more than some of the public outlets do. Well, let's take a very quick look at some of the other states that are looming out there. Of course, once Iowa happens, these are all subject to change. Even if Iowa wasn't happening, they're all subject to change because voters are interesting people um, and sometimes they change their minds. But at the moment, Sanders also having a pretty good run of things in New Hampshire. He is currently in the lead on the 538 tracker at about 23.4 percent, trailed by Biden at about 18.4 percent. Then you have Buttigieg at 13.8, Warren at 12.9. Klobuchar starting to creep her way up there in New Hampshire as well. And Tulsi Gabbard popping here a little bit more than she does in other places at 5.2 percent. We have the you know latest NBC News Marist polling sort of telling that same sort of story, although there they have Buttigieg up in the second place slot at 17 points. So typically, Iowa and New Hampshire do not always agree. They agreed for John Kerry. That was the I've been wondering. I'm like, at some point in the last few decades, Iowa and New Hampshire have to have both done the same thing. John Kerry in 2004. That is when Iowa and New Hampshire did the same thing. But otherwise, they generally don't agree with each other. But if Bernie Sanders wins Iowa, and he's looking pretty good in New Hampshire right now, thoughts? I mean, then does it matter that he's not polling as strongly in, like, South Carolina because you've got 
Steyer or beyond that, you've got Bloomberg in the I game? I mean, it's going to depend on on the spread. It's going to depend on who is two and three. The expectations of who is strong in New Hampshire are different, given you have two candidates who are from that region, and you have candidates who've spent a lot of time in Iowa, for example, and been on the air for a long time in Iowa. So I think you take all that together, and there is no way to predict if X candidate gets one, you know, places number blank and number blank in Iowa, New Hampshire, then blank will happen. There is no algebraic equation that you can devise that will tell you the answer. Somebody who follows us on Twitter (laughs) definitely has one. Well, in fact, ladies, there is. (laughs) (laughs) No, there isn't because it really depends on, you know, who is second and third and are those candidates divided by, you know, are they, is the spread like one point or five points or six points? You know, we don't know. And I know that, you know, candidates who come in third may try to make it seem like they won when, you know, when they didn't. And obviously, like, if Amy Klobuchar, who is not coming in third, comes in third, that's... That's big for her. That's a big That's a big story. If, you know, one of the other candidates who has been in the top four for a while comes in third, that is a different kind of story. Yeah. And the fact that you have four candidates all up there at the top, whoever gets fourth, that's going to be trouble for them. I think that's going to be tough. Right. There are three tickets out of Iowa. Three right? tickets out of Iowa. That's going to be tough. But if it's... Like, if Elizabeth Warren gets fourth, I still don't think she's totally out of it because I think at that point then you're going to see even more firepower turned on Bernie Sanders. If he gets weakened, does she st- is she still the safety valve for progressives? Who knows? There's right. so many different ways to game this out, though, because it is so wide open. And, you know, of course, you also have a lot of Democrats saying this is not going to be decided until we get to two states that have larger communities of color represented, and that's in Nevada and South Carolina. So obviously that's a different... And then you have other candidates who are like, it's not going to matter until we get to Super Tuesday, and that's where I am. The calendar was changed even before all these candidates got in. The calendar was different, and you know now just everything. It's hard. I guess I'm saying that this isn't... You can't really go based on, well, this is what always happens, so if that happens this time, then that's going to mean X. I don't think we can really look at it that way. My head tells me... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that the polls are all too close and we can't tell what's going to happen. And my heart tells me that it's time for a break. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Trump impeachment and his general election prospects. Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that by increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups. It would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion. Invent Together is a coalition of organizations, companies, universities, and concerned citizens committed to ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to invent and patent. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action today. Okay, we are back. Uh, President's job approval not moving a ton. 45.3% approve. Uh, 51.8% disapprove. That That's actually, I think that's a high for him since... Didn't um, Sean Trendy say this is the highest it's been, like... Yeah. 
And since the beginning, right? Did I see that? Did I see that uh, correct on Twitter? That it looks it right. It looks right. I mean, I'm it, back. You have to go all the way back to inauguration. I'm going to go to Twitter where I do all my fact checking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure someone will correct us if this is not true. In the, on in the aggregate, this looks like it's the first time since he was inaugurated, since that very first like week that his approval has gone above 45 percent, which is so fascinating because there is at the same time. A ton of general election polling suggesting potential trouble and tons of polling suggesting people want to see witnesses or, you know, they may be tired of the impeachment process and feel frustrated by it, but also would like more information. We'll get to all that in a second. Sorry, breaking. It's not breaking, but Trump's job approval is now the highest it's been in our average since February 5th. That's Sean Trendy from yesterday so you know he's and he's got this new uh washington post abc poll he's got 56 percent job approval on the economy which is up 10 points from september however only 39 percent approve of how he's handling impeachment so the economy seems to be driving people people's views more than impeachment um but these general election matchups are still not great for him they're they're close they are closer than some of the other ones we have seen. Here you have uh, Biden up four, Biden 50, Trump 46 in this ABC Post poll. Sanders up two, Warren and Trump tied. Bloomberg up three, Bloomberg one point more, quote unquote, electable than Sanders. Buttigieg loses to Trump by three and Klobuchar wins by one. There's still some undecideds with when it comes to the Klobuchar and Buttigieg matchups and the, and I guess the Bloomberg matchup as well, but there are really not that many undecideds for Trump versus Warren Sanders and Biden. People kind of know where they're going to fall on this. I am struck by the unbelievable gender gap that is going on here. So for context in the 2016 election, Donald Trump won men by I believe eleven points, and he won, and he lost women by thirteen points. So pretty big gender gap, right? Men going eleven points one way, women going thirteen points the other way. The current ABC Washington Post poll gender gap on Trump versus Biden, and I will stipulate by saying the numbers for Trump versus Sanders are almost identical. Has Trump winning men by twenty? So that's almost twice what yep. he won men by last time. And he has him losing women by 26, which is double what he lost women by last time. Yeah. So even though the top line number is like, oh, Trump's only down by four or this looks like a very close contest. America is divided. We're divided like along demographic lines in a huge way. When you have only 35 percent of women voting for Trump and then only 38 percent of men voting for Biden, this is this was just like a galaxy brain like moment. We knew the gender gap was big. The fact that it has doubled on both sides since 2016 when it was already big is like, wow. Wow. So it's been a little while since I dusted all these these off, these little gender gap points that I like to make. But (laughs) it's my recollection that 16 was the first time you had a double-digit gender gap where the Democrat did not win. And the gender gap being defined as the difference between men and women's support for the winner. So you're not – like doubling the gap. You're looking at men and women's support, not the difference in the margins, which would make it look a lot bigger, right? And so that gender gap that was in double digits in 16, but you, you know, but you didn't have uh, a Democrat win in 18 was 
the first time, I believe, that women, you know, kind of propelled Democrats to success because men voted on average in House races Republican, women voted Democratic, and you had Democratic gains that came, you know, disproportionately, mm-hmm. obviously, from women. So that normally doesn't happen that when Democrats win at the House level, both genders, there has that be a, there's a gender gap, but both genders vote Democratic, even if the men by a smaller margin. So that's my recollection. But so here you have like a 23 point gender gap between men and women's support for Trump, which is it is massive, massive. And I think that for me, the thing that makes it even more striking is how much more massive it is than the already large gender gap we saw in 2016. Like it got bigger. It doubled. Way to go. Wild. Wild. It's almost as if he was trying to alienate women. <laughs> Guess what? Message received. <laughs> this is I mean, this is something else. You know, he cares and feeds that gender gap every day, you know. So, uh, well, on impeachment, the numbers have not moved as much. So his his job approval is in good place. His impeachment numbers remain in not a great place in the aggregate. Overall on the question of do you support removing Trump from office? 48% of voters overall, according to the 538 tracker, say yes. Uh, that is 43% of independents, 9.5% of Republicans, and 84.2% of Democrats. Um, but overall, on the question of just do you support impeaching Trump? So this includes impeaching and impeaching plus removal. The number goes up to 50.3% support, so a little bit higher. I mean, it's a majority but by a very slim hair. And right. I think, you know, that's... I remain skeptical that this will change a great deal. Frankly, even if John Bolton testifies, I'm not convinced these numbers budge all that much one way or the other. But there is polling to suggest that voters would like to see witnesses. They would like to get more information. Now, there was some polling. I know last week we talked about Maine and we talked about some polling that Jeff Guerin had put out about Susan Collins in Maine. So the NRSC put out some polling today. Uh, I did not look to see who the pollster was, but sort of trying to push back on this idea that on the one hand, if you ask, do people want to see witnesses and do people believe that Trump did things wrong? Like they say, yes. The way the NRSC poll asks it, it seems to be more like, should Congress get back to doing other things? You know, sort of talking about the trade-offs of like every minute Congress spends on impeachment, they're not spending, you know, confirming judges or not taking up bills that Nancy mm-hmm. Pelosi sends out of the House or whatever that is. And and so when you ask that way, people are like, oh, yes, I would like Congress to get back to what they were doing. Or, yes, you know, the, the House's hundred hours of testimony is enough or whatever. You know, like there are ways you can word it where people are like, oh, yeah, OK, let's move on. But the way in this poll, this looks like morning consult. Is that right? Uh, yes. They say 53 to 27 say there should be new evidence allowed versus no new evidence. And 55 to 26 the Senate should versus should not call additional witnesses to testify. So this is the political pickle that a lot of these folks are finding themselves in now. Yeah. And there's quite a bit of other polling. I mean, we just had something come out from Navigator. Uh, This is the work I I do with the folks at Global Strategy Group, our firm, along with theirs. And they have a similar question about witnesses, you know, for example, regardless of whether you support or oppose the Senate removing Trump from office, which would you prefer? A full trial with evidence presented and witnesses giving you testimony or a short proceeding that states the charges and goes to a Senate vote on removal and a majority and even 45 percent of Republicans, a plurality of Republicans say a full trial with evidence. Similar question about 
Mitch McConnell says he wants to move forward with impeachment without calling new witnesses there a majority disapprove. More partisan among Republicans on that when you have the Mitch McConnell queue and, uh, you know, Morning Consul asks this in a couple different ways. There are a majority who say Trump should not be allowed to use executive privilege to prevent witnesses from testifying. Um, Quinnipiac, I think, asks something about this as well, I believe. Maybe not. On Oh, yeah. Yeah, they did. They, they asked whether – well, on the question in their poll, should Trump be removed from office, they found 48 percent say no, 47 percent say yes – which is not really a change at all from their early January poll. However, then they ask, do you believe that witnesses should be allowed right. to testify? And 75 to 20 yeah. answers yes. Now, what I wonder as well is if you specify the names of witnesses, how would things change? Sure. So are there some Republicans out there who are like, I want to hear from the whistleblower and from Hunter Biden? And like, that's why they're answering that question. Those are not necessarily things that you're going to see happen because you wouldn't have any Democrats voting for it. Uh, but that's kind of the discussion inside D.C. is do you try to... I think they can pass that, though, without having Democrat support, right? I mean, they have a majority of Republicans who could say we want to call but, witnesses. But if you open up the witnesses process, yeah. then... You all just hell jump, breaks loose. Right, right, political, right. All political hell breaks So, loose. you know, that's... I do think that that's an interesting wrinkle in the polling here is what percentage of people saying I want to hear from witnesses are not interested in hearing from John Bolton. But they would very much like to hear from Hunter Biden. We do have a question on John Bolton, by the way. So, but yes, I, I hear what you're saying. And I saw that analysis in Axios. And there may be Republicans there, you know, who that's how what they're thinking. I also think there's just this desire that if we were asking this about anything, like, should we hear more evidence about blank, blank thing you've never even heard of? And we like made up something just to see people would say, yes, let's get more information. Oh, please. Our friends out there who are pollsters and who are listening, can you please add a question that asks people, do you believe that Jennifer Lawrence should be required to testify? Or like, I mean, maybe like a less obvious celebrity name, but like pick like Joey Tribbiani. Should Joey Tribbiani be required to testify or should he be protected by executive privilege? Like, just pick a random name and see how people break down. Well, so <laughs> people want more, tend to want more information. Now, look, there's a question here. There are two questions. We have two questions about John Bolton and the latest navigator. How much have you heard about former National Security Advisor John Bolton stating his willingness to comply with a subpoena? This before the book thing from the weekend. And that was basically evenly divided between heard something and didn't really hear anything. And then a second follow-up, if Bolton has firsthand knowledge of Donald Trump's actions relating to Ukraine and investigating Joe Biden, how important is it for John Bolton to testify in the Senate impeachment trial? And 94% of Democrats say important, 77% of independents, and 70% of Republicans. So- you know, without the sort of cue, I mean, even here has a cue like he's going to have firsthand knowledge. But if it doesn't have a cue of like, here's who opposes this, right? The yeah. way like the Mitch McConnell question did, right? Then you have Republicans like, oh, let's get, you know, more information. Yeah. Well, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about people eating meat and people watching the big game. <laughs> Not at the same time. All right. We are back. I like this new meat meatless trend. And so does the rest of America. That's my takeaway. New polling from Gallup <laughs> asked people, in the past 12 months, have you been eating more meat, less meat, or about the same amount? 72% of Americans say about the same amount. Only 5% say they have increased their meat intake. 
but 23% say they've been trying to cut back or they have been cutting back. Um, in particular, women twice as likely as men to say they are consuming less meat, non-white versus white. About That's a big difference. Six, you know, 31% of non-white uh, respondents said they are consuming less meat. Not as much of an age break on this as I would have thought. In fact, the youngest respondents are the most likely to say that they are eating more meat. So talk about a finding that you might not have expected. Right. Generation Z is apparently Generation Meat. <laughs> generation Me. Generation <laughs> Me is Generation Meat. Um, and then they asked a question, have you personally tried any plant-based meats or not? 41% of U.S. adults say yes, 59% say no. Um, on this question, there is much less of a gender gap than there was uh, previously. Here, men and women are roughly as likely to say that they have tried plant-based meats. Actually, here is where the generation gap opens up. Younger respondents much more likely to say they have tried to eat plant-based meats. So is it just that the older folks are just becoming vegetarian then? I don't know. Or maybe they're not sure what you mean by, well, not what you mean, but what one means by yes. plant-based meat. The Impossible Burger and other variants seem to be a little more popular with more affluent respondents, those with a household income of over $100,000 a year. Majorities of them say they have tried plant-based meats, while only 30% of the, 31% of those with incomes under 40 k say the same. Those Impossible and Beyond Meat like the ground meat that looks like getting a pound of ground. I mean, it is fantastic. Like you'd have to basically say, I am taking, uh, there's, there, there may be a cost difference. I don't know because I don't buy ground meat. I just buy the, so I have the comparison shops. But, you know, you'd have to say like, I'm taking a stand against plant-based meat because they taste so similar. It's like not even, it's unbelievable how similar they taste to me. Like one time I got a, I ordered, I was like at an airport, I got the Impossible Burger. I almost went up to the counter to say, uh, you gave me the wrong burger <laughs> like, because it tasted so much like meat. I was like, how dare they think I would not be fooled? I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is the Impossible Burger. I mean, it really makes a difference. There's a, a hipstery taco shop across the street from Fox News in New York, Taco Dumbo, Taco Jumbo. I don't know. It's written in cursive. I can't really tell what the first, number, first letter of the second word is. But they have an Impossible Taco. And it was really good. Although I think on the menu, it does not specifically say impossible taco. It like in the same way that you wouldn't say Super Bowl, you'd say big game. Like it dances around. It says something like it doesn't say impossible meat, but it's like implying that that's yeah. what it is. Yeah. Um, and it was very good. I was a big fan. But I've also heard that the I think I read a report that the Burger King Impossible Whopper is not selling as well. So maybe mm. if Burger King is your the place you tend to go, right. it's getting plant-based meat is not high up on your list. Right. Well, if you are watching the Super Bowl, maybe you're having wings instead or can you we can make probably make impossible burger chili. That probably you, really you good. absolutely can. I have done that and it is great. So this year, Quinnipiac asked, do you plan to watch the Super Bowl or not? Uh, 56% of Americans say yes. Men, by a two to one margin, say yes, where women are split in half. The age bracket most likely to watch the Super Bowl is 50 to 64, where for respondents under the age of 35, it's only about half. Regionally, more folks in the Northeast and South compared to the Midwest and West, which is interesting because the teams in the Super Bowl are in the Midwest and West. It is Kansas City versus San Francisco. 
So I thought that was fascinating. And then they do ask in the Super Bowl, who do you want to win? The Kansas City Chiefs, the San Francisco 49ers, or do you not care? Uh, Half of America says they don't care. 26% says Chiefs. 21% says 49ers. Uh, I put myself in the don't care category. I like both quarterbacks. I like Patrick Mahomes and Jimmy Garoppolo. I'm just excited for a good game. I'm going to be in Iowa watching it from a sports bar somewhere, probably. So, wow. That sounds real exciting. No <laughs> no fun Super Bowl parties for me. Yeah, I'll be here. I don't know what I'm doing for the Super Bowl. Well, if if you're going to be in Des Moines as well. Yeah, no, I'm going on the, in the morning. Oh, okay. Never mind. Well, I'll let you know if I find a, a good spot to post up and have some wings and some wings made out of real chicken, most likely. Yeah. No, you're going to be. I did live off of Morningstar Farms chick chicken right in scare quotes yeah. chicken nuggets in college yep like they're they were real good yeah they're probably terrible for you they're probably loaded with sodium i have no idea but they were delicious i mean i have been eating meat substitutes for a very long time i eat meat not that often but i have enjoy just as much if not more all the various substitutes so i am well versed in the universe of meat substitutes and the the new ones are like really they are kind of mind-blowing. Well, polling says you're not alone. Yeah. All right, what did we learn this week? <sighs> well, it's happening now. The big game is here. Not the Super Bowl, but Iowa and then New Hampshire. Stay tuned while you're having your fake meatballs or fake meat chili or what have you. Start getting ready for our big guest that we're going to have next week to break down the space between Iowa and New Hampshire. You can find us on Twitter at, at the pollsters, individually at, at RG Romero and at K Soltis Anderson, or you can find us on Facebook. Thanks. Bye.